You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Morning, everyone. Uh, For those I haven't met yet, my name is Tracy and I'm bringing the Bible reading this morning. So today's Bible reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. Uh, You'll find it, a link to it on the welcome card or it'll be appearing on the screen behind me or there are Bibles um, on the floor in the aisle that you can grab. So Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Uh, Thanks, Tracy. Um, It'd be great if you have the passage open. Uh, as we go through, and there's an outline of my talk on the welcome card that I mentioned earlier. You can look that up if it's useful uh, for you to follow along. Uh, But let's pray and ask for God's help uh, as we look at his words this morning. Father, thanks so much uh, for the chance to gather together this morning uh, to hear you speak to us from your word. Father, that's uh, what we do ask and, and pray would happen. Uh, that we would hear your words as living and active and would feel as if we have actually heard you speak to us. Uh, Father, help me to be faithful and to speak with humility and uh, authenticity and conviction and help us to be those who have ears to hear and hearts that are ready to receive your word. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beware of visions for the church. Beware of visions for the church. That's a a line uh, out of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book. I don't know if you've heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, He was a German uh, theologian and pastor. Uh, You can read, uh, there's some great biographies of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, one by a guy named Eric Eric Metaxas. You can read that. Some people think it's great. I mean, it's really well written. My friend, uh, Rhys Pazant, who's spoken here a couple of times, uh, he says it's not historically accurate enough for his liking. But anyway, it's a good story. Uh, So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he wrote a book uh, called Life Together, uh, exploring what Christian community could or should look like. In that book, he says, beware of visions for the church. Why do you think Bonhoeffer says that? Like, surely he, surely God wants us to have deep hopes and dreams and visions for the church, for what the church could or should look like in any particular time and place. 
Well, Bonhoeffer says it because he thinks in his mind there's a risk that we get so captivated by our particular version of the dream church, you know, how we think the church should be, that we struggle to commit to loving a real church. Because we're always judging the people that we're among by the standards of our dream church. So after saying, beware of visions for the church, Bonhoeffer continues. This is what he says. He got, uh, it's pretty strong. He says, God hates visionary dreamers. I, mean, I think Bonhoeffer was a bit of a visionary dreamer himself, but there you go. He hates visionary dreaming uh, because, it makes, uh, because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Uh, the person who fashions a visionary ideal uh, of community demands that it be realised by others, by themselves, and by God. They enter the community of Christians with their demands. They set up, excuse me, they set up their own laws and they judge the brethren and God himself accordingly. Bonhoeffer, I suspect, has read Acts chapter 2, verse 17. You know, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, the Apostle Peter uh, is preaching in Jerusalem. Uh, The Spirit of God has been poured out. He quotes from the prophet Joel, and the prophet Joel said that when God's Spirit is poured out on his people, old men would, uh, young men would see visions and old men would dream dreams. Like, Bonhoeffer knows that. He's all in favour of these spirit-inspired dreams and visions for the church. And yet he's also saying, beware the person uh, who's so captured by their own vision for the church, their own ideals, uh, that they start judging God themselves and others in accordance with that vision. You might say, but Aaron, like, you know that that's you, right? Right? Like, you know that you're the visionary dreamer. I say, yeah, I know that. Right? I, I love to imagine what the church could or should be like in a particular time and place. I, I love to help a group of people to consider what could it look like for us to embody that together. I love that stuff. Sometimes, in some ways, it takes a person who's wired a bit like that to think, yeah, let's start a church. And yet, I've also been, over the years at times, Bonhoeffer's unhelpful and ungodly visionary dreamer. I have been overly critical of others who haven't been willing to buy into how I think DPC should be. I've been frustrated and impatient with others Why can't they just see that this is where we should go? This is what we should do. And we should have been doing it yesterday, not next year. I've been like this. I've been Bonhoeffer's unhelpful, ungodly, visionary dreamer. But let me say, having spent just a bit over 10 years as a part of DPC, I'm not persuaded that that is unique to me. Yes, I've had an influential role, but to some degree, all of us enter Christian community with our own set of ideals of how we think church could or should happen. And we can be critical of others who don't measure up to those ideals. 
We want our vision for the church to be realised. Why have I started this way? Because in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32, God gives us his vision for our new life together in the body of Christ. It's God's vision for his church. So it's really important that all of us, including me, take a really close look at this vision. When we look at this vision, we'll see, I think, that it's equal parts compelling, captivating, and yet also challenging. God's vision for his church is not an abstract, impersonal vision, you know, like having a pithy vision statement on a website or at the bottom of all of your emails, like we're really good at that at DPC, right? And God's not opposed to that, I don't think. I don't think it's antithetical to God's purposes for his church, but it's more than that. God's vision is not about a set of rules for how ministry must be done and you kind of judge other people according to how they measure up to those rules. God's vision is much more personal than that. In Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, God's vision affects every part of who we are. That's where it starts. Not out there with fingers pointing at other people, but with us. It affects what's going on in our hearts, Paul says. It affects what's coming out of our mouths. And it affects what we do with our hands. So that's what we're going to look at today uh, under these three headings. God's vision for his church, his captivating yet challenging vision. First, we're going to look uh, at what Paul has to say about our hearts. What's going on in our hearts? So we're not going to work through the the passage uh, exactly in order. Uh, We're going to work through it under these headings. Uh, Take a look at verse 31. Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, and with every form of malice. Uh, That word get rid of uh, kind of has the sense of pick something up and carry it away. Like, get rid of it. It's a little bit like you might do with a piece of rubbish, you know? You're here in church, you see a piece of rubbish on the ground, you pick it up and you carry it away. You put it in the bin. Paul's saying that should be our approach to the sinful attitudes of the heart in verse 31. If we see them lying around like a piece of rubbish in our own lives or in the lives of our church, we should seek to pick them up and get rid of them. Put them in the bin. They're a part of our old life, the old self, not fitting for our new life together in Christ. We're called to get rid of them. Of course, to get rid of them, we've got to be able to identify them, got to be able to see them. So what are these different attitudes? Paul says first we're to get rid of all bitterness. What does bitterness look like? I mean, I'm sure we've all felt bitter, but... Like, how do we explain what bitterness is? I, I want to suggest that bitterness is typically happens when you're so, you're so hurt and, and wounded and discouraged that it just leaves a really bad taste in your mouth. That's where the idea of bitterness comes from. In a Christian community, it might be a, a bad taste, a, a bitterness towards a, a particular person, or it might be towards the church as a whole. Right, that's... Bitterness. Of course, it's sort of encouraging in a strange way that Paul includes this as the first of this list of things that we've got to get rid of. 
Because it says to us that it's kind of normal. It's not unusual for Christians to experience this bitterness. Paul knows that when we as Christians get together and try to do life in community with all our sin and foolishness and careless tongues, that we will hurt one another. And the risk is that if that hurt isn't healed, if it's allowed to fester in our hearts, we will become bitter. Paul knows that. And so he says right up front, you've got to get rid of all bitterness. Because he knows it rarely ends just with bitterness in our hearts. That's just the start of the downward spiral. If we allow bitterness to fester in our hearts, Paul says, uh, sooner or later it will probably erupt in anger and rage. The bitterness in our hearts, it's kind of beneath the surface, like kind of volcanic lava bubbling away. But it's hard to hold it in all the time. And so it erupts in anger and rage. It might even erupt, as Paul says uh, in verse 31, with brawling. And when I was a kid, uh, I had some brawls in the schoolyard at school. And they were typically physical brawls, you know, rolling around, trying to, you know, pull someone's shirt off or whatever we were doing. And I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. He's actually mainly talking about a verbal confrontation. He's saying when your heart is bitter and you feel angry and you're filled with rage, typically the first thing is it explodes out in an open verbal confrontation. You're not getting what you want in the life of the Christian community, so you tackle it head on. And that really works. Like if you've, you've probably experienced that in life in general, in your own family, in a workplace, maybe you've experienced it as a part of a church, at this church. Usually there's not much good fruit that comes from that sort of open verbal confrontation. And typically people are left feeling hurt. And so because the open verbal confrontation doesn't work typically, we don't sometimes ease up, we resort to kind of more covert behind-the-scenes methods. That's what Paul says next. We might resort to slandering a brother or sister. To slander them, that's to kind of denigrate their reputation behind the scenes, tell other people how poorly they've treated you and cast aspersions on their character more generally. That's what it means to to slander a brother or sister. Or we get caught up in what Paul calls every form of malice. Right, That's kind of wicked or evil schemes. Colluding with other people. We wouldn't call it that. We're trying to gather an alliance together of people who feel the same way about the person that we're upset with. And we've got some scheme to marginalise them or to hurt them. Every form of of malice. It's a pretty ugly picture, isn't it? Verse 31. But it's real. Like Paul knows that this is not unheard of in any church. It wouldn't be unheard of in Ephesus. And the reality is it's not unheard of in our church. Like we're not immune to this stuff. These sort of sinful attitudes bubble up in our hearts. Paul says, by God's grace, we must seek to get rid of them. 
We must seek to nip them in the bud. Why? Well, if we don't, they'll eat us as individuals and our whole church apart from the inside out. That's a little bit more complicated than just getting rid of sinful anger, but because in verses 26 and 27, Paul at least kind of provides a little bit of wriggle room for the possibility that we might experience righteous anger, sin-free anger. Notice that in verse 26, he says, in your anger, do not sin. So Paul seems to, to at least put a little window there to say it's possible that you might be angry and not sin. And I guess he has to be open to that because uh, Jesus was angry. You know, in John chapter 2, for example, he makes a whip and drives the money changers out of his father's house, the temple. Right? Jesus was angry and yet he never sinned. His anger was holy and righteous and pure. So it's at least possible if our aim, chapter Ephesians 4, I think it's verse 16, our aim in the Christian life is that we would be growing up into maturity and becoming more and more like Christ, our head, then I guess it's at least possible that we would in some ways and sometimes be able to express righteous, sin-free anger. Possible, but not very likely, I'd suggest. Because more often than not, our anger is all kind of tangled up with our own sinful pride, our own self-centeredness. It's really risky to have anger just bubbling away in the church. That's why Paul kind of puts two caveats on this or two disclaimers. Verse 26, he says, we should not let the sun go down while we're still angry. Early in my married life, if Gabby and I were having a fight, I would sometimes have this verse and I'd say to Gabby, like, it's, I know it's 12 o'clock, I know it's 1 o'clock in the morning, but we must not, let, you know, we've got to deal with this before the end of the day, you know? She'd be like, yeah, I'll deal with it more effectively when I've had six hours sleep, you know? Like, and so it, Paul's not saying that if there's a, a, an issue in a relationship with a brother or sister, that it must be dealt with immediately, before the sun goes down. In fact, often it's more wise, isn't it, to take some time to cool off and to process and to pray, to think about what you might want to say to that brother or sister, and then you can have a more fruitful conversation when the time comes. But what he is saying is don't unnecessarily delay being reconciled to a brother or sister. Because if you do, notice verse 27, if we delay being reconciled, if we, if we kind of allow anger and bitterness to, to fester away in our hearts, Paul says we will give the devil a foothold. This is one of the devil's main strategies, to use sinful attitudes and anger that is running around in the church, to drive a wedge in the church, a foothold in the church, ultimately to divide the church that God has brought together in Christ. This is really, I guess, relevant for us as a church. And I'm conscious that, yeah, it's a challenging talk for me to, sermon for me to do this morning. We're at a, a really important crossroads in the life of our church, aren't we? Been all sorts of stuff has gone on the past few years. Some good things, some grieving things. Uh, there's been lots that we've learned, 
but there's still lots to learn. Right now, we're in the midst of working through stuff to do with my resignation, uh, and there's all sorts of different thoughts and feelings about that. People have different opinions on how things could be done or how things should be done or how things could have been done or how things should have been done. In the midst of all of that and all the different emotions that go along with that, we must not be naive to the devil's wicked schemes. He will try to use our sinful attitudes, the sinful anger in our hearts to divide our church. He already is. We must not be naive to that. We don't need to be afraid because Ephesians chapter 1 God has exalted Christ above every spiritual power in this age and in the age to come. We don't need to be afraid, but we need to be vigilant. We need to guard our own hearts. To get rid of the sinful attitudes by God's grace. I listed in verse 31. And we need uh, verse 32 to have our hearts instead full of much more life-giving things. Kindness, compassion, forgiveness. Notice verse 32, Paul says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. (laughs) Thanks, Ariel. Yeah, so Paul, I mean, kindness kindness is one of those words um, that gets thrown around in Christian circles. It sort of seems like nice, I don't know if you've heard that, like, oh, that person was kind. I think what we mean is they were really nice to me. But I think that kind of doesn't get the richness of the word kind. Uh, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, Jesus says, a uh, pretty familiar passage, Matthew 11, verse 30, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that word easy in Matthew 11, verse 30, is the same as the word kind in Ephesians 4, verse 32. I think this helps us to understand what Paul and Jesus mean by the word kind. Jesus is saying that that being yoked to him, being brought into a a relationship with him, a unity with him through faith in him, uh, that that is something that is kind for our souls. It's something that lifts burdens off our souls rather than the, the yokes of the Jewish teachers in his day that put burdens onto people. To be yoked to Jesus is kind. It lifts burdens off you. Spiritually speaking, at least, it makes your life easier. This is the heart of kindness. I've experienced this kindness a whole lot here at DPC. Not exclusively, of course. We fail in all sorts of ways. But especially since uh, I've started to lose more and more of my vision, people have been really kind to me. I was thinking before. uh, Like, no one at the welcoming table ever has an issue with writing out a name tag for me so that I can avoid the embarrassment of writing across four name tags, right? Because I can't see the edges of them. And then they always, you know, pick it up and they make sure it's oriented in the right way so that I don't put my name tag on upside down. Right? That's kindness. It makes my life a bit easier. People are kind when they offer to make me a cup of tea because they know that will be hard for me. Or they offer me a lift to make it a bit easier to get to a church event or meeting. Right? This is kindness. Right? How might we relate to one another with kindness in such a way that, that we lift burdens off one another? 
making life a little bit easier for one another. That's to be kind to one another. Paul also says, be compassionate to one another. To be compassionate is to suffer with someone. That's what the word literally means. So maybe there are different types of people. There are those who, naturally speaking, are a little bit kind of clueless or oblivious to the sufferings of brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not really to be compassionate, right? Paul calls us to suffer with one another as a part of the body of Christ. Nor is it to be compassionate to kind of notice people's sufferings, uh, but you sort of want to keep it all at arm's length because it's all just too hard. Now, sometimes we need to put boundaries in place, of course. We need to be mindful of our limitations. But the call to be compassionate is to suffer with our brothers and sisters, to enter into their suffering. But not to enter into their suffering. Maybe this is the, uh, another kind of different type of person. Uh, some of us enter into people's suffering and we kind of enter in so deep that we get overwhelmed and consumed with their suffering. We can't even help our brother or sister. We're kind of incapacitated by the suffering that we've experienced. That's also not quite what Paul means when he says be compassionate to one another. To be compassionate to someone is to enter into their sufferings to feel their suffering with the aim of helping them in the midst of their suffering in meaningful ways. That's what Paul means when he says, be compassionate to one another. And then Paul says to forgive one another as Christ, as God forgave us in Christ. We all know it's a lot easier to say with our mouths, I forgive you. Uh, than it is to actually forgive someone in our hearts. Uh, That's especially difficult once you kind of understand a a little bit of the, the, I guess, the full extent of what it means to forgive someone. Uh, In his book, uh, it's called The Peacemaker, a man named Ken Sandy has what he calls the four promises of forgiveness. Uh, They're based on biblical principles. You might have some qualms, you might word some of them a bit differently, but I think it's useful for us to think, what does it actually mean to forgive a brother or sister as God in Christ has forgiven us? Ken Sandy says, the first promise is, I will not dwell on this incident. I forgive you and I will not dwell on this incident. I'm not always good at that. I sometimes say I forgive you and then I'm dwelling on it all the time. Can't get past it. Second promise: I will not bring up this incident again. Uh, this bring up this incident again and use it against you. I know that I have, in the last ten years, hurt brothers and sisters in this church for this very reason. Because I've said I forgive you, and then I've got a really good memory, right? So something else happens down the track, and I'm going, yeah, but what about this? I dredge up the sin that I said I forgave in the past. And they say, but you said you forgave me for that, Aaron. The third promise, I will not talk to others about this incident. We can do that easily, can't we? I forgive you, but just so you know, (laughs) I'm going to, we might not say that to them, but you know, I'm going to be talking to lots of people about how much you hurt me. I will not let this incident uh, come between us or hinder our personal relationship. 
it's really, really hard to forgive someone. I think that when we, for, when we say, I forgive you, we think that what we're saying is, I excuse how you treated me and it doesn't matter. Right? That's not what we're saying. That's not Christian forgiveness. We'll come back to that in a second. Right? Being kind and compassionate and forgiving to one another is impossible. I want to say it's impossible unless we keep our eyes fixed on Christ together. It's impossible to do. If your eyes are fixed on your brother or sister's sin, you won't be able to be kind and compassionate and forgiving towards them. If your eyes are fixed on all the things your brother or sister do, does that drives you crazy, you won't be able to be kind and compassionate and forgiving towards them. But if our eyes together are fixed on Christ and his death on the cross, we just might be able to live out verse 32. Because when your eyes are fixed on Christ and his death on the cross, you understand that God has shown us together as his people the ultimate kindness. Remember, what is kindness? It's about lift burden, lifting burdens off people. And what has God done in Christ? He's taken the punishment for our sins upon the cross to fully and finally lift off the burden of our sin and our shame and our condemnation forever. That is ultimate kindness. And that is what empowers us to be kind to one another. And God has shown us in Christ the deepest of compassion. He looked down and saw us in our as spiritual beggars, as it were. Those who are poor in spirit, to use the language of Matthew 5. Those who are in suffering and spiritual poverty and compelled by his compassion. He entered into our suffering in his son. But he didn't just enter in to, to give us a tissue and say, oh, gee, are you glad I'm with me in the midst of our suffering? No, he entered in so that he could help us in, a, in our suffering, right? so that he could wash us clean of our sins, so that he could heal our wounds, so that he could clothe us in his glory and righteousness and perfection, and so that we could be united with him and go from spiritual beggars to sons and daughters of the king. That is compassion. Entering into someone's suffering to help them out of their suffering. The compassion that we've experienced in Christ and the forgiveness that we've experienced in Christ, who upon the cross paid the cost of forgiveness. The cost of our sin in rejecting God, the source of all life, was death. And that's what we crave when a brother or sister hurts us. We might be satisfied with something short of death, but we want them to be punished. We want them to pay for how much they've hurt us. And Paul's saying, it's okay, you're not excusing the brother or sister's sin by saying, I forgive you. Because their sin was already paid for in the death of Christ on the cross. You know, I felt this impulse myself. I, I want to exact my pound of flesh from a brother or sister who's hurt me. People have felt that about me too. As if somehow the flesh of Christ given on the cross wasn't enough. I understand that there might be often ongoing consequences when we sin against a brother or sister. I'm not denying that. I'm not denying that the, the need to rebuild trust, we'll come to that in a bit, 
the need for perhaps people to step down from particular roles. or do, like I'm not denying any of that stuff about ongoing consequences for sin. But I am saying that if a brother or sister repents of their sin, as Christians, we are free to forgive them. For we know that Christ paid the penalty for their sin upon the cross. Uh, so God's vision for his church, it's deeply personal. It's captivating. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a community that got rid of the stuff from verse 31 and was full of the stuff in verse 32? Like that's a captivating, compelling community to be a part of. And it's also challenging. Only done by God's grace and by the power of the gospel. God's vision affects our hearts. Uh, the other two will be much briefer, I promise. It also affects our mouths. Uh, notice verse 29. Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, uh, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, uh, that it may benefit, benefit those who listen. Unwholesome talk. Um, Unwholesome is sometimes used to translate something that's rotten, like a, like a rotten piece of fruit. Like, I don't know, but giving someone a rotten piece of fruit doesn't usually do them much good physically, right? And Paul's saying, don't give one another rotten words. They won't do any of you good spiritually. Instead, God calls us to speak words that build one another up, that actually benefit one another. Now, how do we know what sort of words will benefit a brother or sister in Christ? I think it's implied another part of our body. That's our ears, right? You've actually got to be listening to them so that you can understand their needs, like we're to speak and build them up according to their needs. So we have to be able to listen and understand their needs so we can speak words that we have specifically chosen to benefit them in accordance with their needs. And perhaps this is one of the, I mean, this is certainly one of my weaknesses. Right? I've always been more of a talker than a listener. And my dad uh, was very aware of this. I've said before, I think, in a sermon that he uh, would have that saying, you know, God gave you uh, two ears and one mouth. So maybe, Aaron, uh, do the maths on how much you're supposed to use each one. Uh, so I, I've never, I, like, I've had to work a lot at listening and I still need to work a lot. And I suspect I'm not the only one. I was really convicted during the week by another quote uh, from Bonhoeffer's book. Uh, this is what he says about listening. Uh, he says, there's a kind of listening with half an ear, uh, half an ear that presumes already to know uh, what the other person has to say. It is an impatient inattentive listening that is only really waiting for the chance to speak and thus get rid of the other person. I think I've, I'm sometimes like that in conversations. I've heard something that they've got to say and I'm ready to go, you know, my, my mouth wants to be in gear. I'm not really listening to them anymore. How am I going to speak words that benefit them according to their needs? So may God help us. I certainly need help to be able to patiently listen to my brothers and sisters. And I suspect we all need this help to speak words to one another 
that build one another up. Second, in verse 25, Paul calls us to use our mouths uh, to speak words that are true rather than false. Notice that right at the start of the passage, verse 25. Therefore, each of you should put off falsehood uh, and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of the one body. Of course, in Ephesians 1 to 3, Paul went to great lengths to explain how to be a Christian is to be in Christ, is to be united with Christ. We together, by the power of the Spirit, are united with Christ. Who is Christ? Well, we remember last week, he is the one who is full of grace and truth. He's the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So to be a part of God's people, the church that is united with Christ, we should not only avoid lying to one another, we should actively speak the truth to one another. That's what Paul's saying. And we should speak the truth knowing that our brother or sister in Christ is not, I mean, they are our neighbour who Jesus calls us to love, but they're also part of the same body as us. So to lie to them is incredibly, it's like lying to yourself. One commentator puts it like this. They say a lie to a brother or sister in Christ is like a stab to the very heart of Christ. So us speaking truthfully to one another is really critical for the life of our church, isn't it? I mean, it's critical for all community. All community and relationships depend on trust And we know that if you can't trust someone's words, then you can't trust them. That's the bottom line. And I've learned all the more so in the the past few years that we have to be really vigilant about this because trust in relationships, it's just way more fragile than I ever appreciated. Uh, With uh, my kids, I've been uh, talking to them. Uh, I don't know, maybe it won't work for you, but... I've been talking with them about what I've called the sandcastle of trust. Uh, because like all kids, you know, they often think that a little lie isn't that big a deal because, um, you know, how else are you going to get out of brushing your teeth if you don't lie to your parents? And so um, we talk about the sandcastle of trust. You know, sandcastles, you, you work really, really hard to build them up. But often it takes just a, a tiny little thing for the edges to crumble and maybe for it to fall down. And trusting relationships can be a bit like that, can't it? You work really hard to build it up, sometimes over years and years and years, and then something happens where there's a breach of trust and the sandcastle of trust that you thought was really strong starts to crumble and fall. And we've got to get real as a church. The reality is there are some sandcastles of trust in the life of our church that have crumbling edges. I've been a part of that. Some of the sandcastles of trust are crumbling because people feel uh, that I or, or the session haven't been as transparent as we should have been at certain points about different things that have happened. Some of that, I suspect the session would say, yeah, we just can't be because of confidentiality and privacy and so on. At other times, we could have been more transparent. Other times, these breaches of trust uh, have been just because uh, between other people. 
Right? Someone feels that, that their brother or sister hasn't kept their word to them. They've let them down over and over again. They've blatantly lied to them or misrepresented them. All of this damages trust. And I'm not saying every relationship in the church is a mess and, you know, I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to be honest, though. There's some stuff for us to work through together. And we need to pray that the Lord, by the power of his spirit, would enable us to speak words that rebuild sandcastles of trust and that further strengthen those relationships where trust remains strong. That's our hearts, our mouths, and then we've got our hands. Verse 28. Anyone who has been uh, stealing, Paul says, uh, must steal no longer, uh, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something uh, to share with those in need. And now I suspect not many of us here have a kind of um, compulsive problem with shoplifting, you know, like stealing things with our hands. Uh, Maybe you do. Uh, Come and talk to me about that after. Uh, But... That doesn't mean that this is not relevant for us. I think Paul's drawing attention to the fact that that when you become a Christian, you understand something about how God relates to the world. What did God do? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. His hands were open with generosity. And then you look at God's one and only son upon the cross and you see that his hands aren't tight-fisted. His arms are open, his hands are open in open-handed generosity. So when you understand the grace of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it changes how you use your hands. You don't go through life thinking that it's about snatching and grabbing and getting whatever you can. It's about giving and serving and helping and caring. That's how we use our hands. We don't enter a particular relationship or a job or a church thinking first and foremost, what can I get out of this? But what can I give? Because the gospel transforms how we use our hands. So I hope you can see how God's vision for the church is really captivating and compelling It transforms every part of who we are, but it's also incredibly challenging for us to live out together. And a key part of that challenge, we're going to land on this, uh, is I think uh, choosing to love a real church rather than our dream church. To pick up Bonhoeffer's language. Bonhoeffer says that the person who loves their dream dream of community will destroy the community that they're a part of. But the person who loves those who are actually around them will create community. I'm not saying there's never a good reason to move on from a church. Of course there are. There are good and godly reasons to do that. But the reality is that it's easy to love your dream church because there's no real people in it, right? Like you're, It's kind of just in your mind and it's everything that you want. So why wouldn't you love it? Right? 
And then you become a part of a real church with people who see things differently and want to do things differently and the mess and the sin and the foolishness and you're just constantly discouraged and frustrated. And some of that is warranted. But some of it is because we want to be in a dream church, not a real church. And I just want to suggest that God calls us to not primarily love a dream church but a real and messy church. A church like DPC. It's no secret, we're not a perfect church. We're not everyone's, you know, fantasy church or dream church. We're a real church with messy people and messy lives uh, that was started and has been pastored by a a pastor like me with all sorts of mess that I'm still working through. But that doesn't mean that it needs to be chucked out. It means that by God's grace together, we just might be able to live out God's captivating vision. Here in Ephesians 4, we start with ourselves and thinking about our hearts and how we use our mouths, how we use our hands, how we use our ears. And I reckon if we do that by God's grace, we'll get somewhere in living out God's vision for his church. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We pray that uh, your word would be doing its work in our hearts, uh, that we would see and identify sinful attitudes that are there in verse 31 and be moved to confess them to you and perhaps to others when needed to get rid of them. We pray, Father, that you would help us, to our hearts to be full by the power of the gospel with kindness and compassion and forgiveness towards one another. We pray, Father, that, uh, that you might help us to use our mouths in ways that build one another up, that benefit one another, that build trust and community and love. And we pray, Father, that we might use our hands to love and serve and care and bless. We've got lots of work uh, to do, Father, with your help and the help of one another. We know that. Uh, But we trust that you're good, uh, that you have good plans for your people here at DPC. And as we turn to you in humble dependence, uh, we trust that you might help us to live out this vision uh, for our new life together in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.